We thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that you have spoken to us and that you continue to do so. Father, we pray that your word would, would uh, equip us today, Father, that it would be a revelation to our hearts. Father, we pray that we would listen intently as we are listening to your own voice today. Lord, I pray that you would use your word to transform our hearts, Father, to form us and to make us more like your son, Jesus. I pray that your word would correct us, that it would comfort us, that it would help us be more like you and bring joy to our hearts. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So we just read a few verses. Now, you may remember that we spent the last few months, several months, going through the books of Samuel. And the books of Samuel have really zoomed in, basically, into three lives. The lives of three men, mainly. The life of Samuel at the beginning... Then it really zoomed into the life of Saul and his foolishness. And lastly, we spent the last several months talking about the life of David. But in this passage, we are reminded that though David was a great king who accomplished great things, he was never alone. He was always surrounded by those that God had placed next to him to accomplish the things that he wanted accomplished. David was always surrounded by great people. Now, we just read about three of them. These three were the inner circle of David. They were valiant men, great warriors who accomplished great things. We read the three examples. Uh, JB, I'm going to call him JB because that is a tough name. JB, on his own, killed 800 people with a spear. Eliezer fought with David against the Philistines. The fight was so intense, the Bible tells us, that by the end of it, his hand was frozen close to the sword. And then it talks about Shammah. Shammah fought against the Philistines in a field of lentils, just in case you were wondering where. It was a field full of lentils. I can't even picture that. Uh, But after everybody else had fled, Shammah stood by David and he fought and defeated the Philistines. These three guys were great guys. They were the three men of David. Now what I want you to notice though, is that as much as the Bible is telling us great feats, like I would not be able to be one of these. I mean, had I been in that fight, I would have been gone, you know, pretty early. Like, I don't think I would have made it. But here's what I want you to think, that the Bible is not telling us so much about how great these guys were, but it's telling us a specific detail in verses 10 and 12. I want you to see this. In verse 12, it says this. Um, at the end of verse 12, it says, And the Lord worked a great victory. Notice that Shammah was there, but it was the Lord that worked out the great victory. Now, if you keep reading chapter 23, and I would encourage you to do so, you will see a list of other people, of other men. We go from the three men to the 30 men of David. And really, it's a list of about 37 people. But what we know is that David had an inner circle. He had these three guys, and then he had a bigger group of guys that surrounded him. He had a team. Now, what I want you to notice, though, is that each one of them had a different role. These three guys, they were not David, but they were part of the three. Now, there were 30 other guys that were not part of the three, but they were part of the 30. They each had different roles. They each had different positions. And yet, the Lord used every single one of them. They all did what God had called them to do. You see, sometimes we look around and wish we could be doing, some, doing something different from the, for the Lord. Sometimes we wish that our role were more important. Sometimes we wish we were part of the 30. 
Sometimes we wish we were part of the three. And sometimes when we're part of the three, we wish we were David. And yet, the Lord has placed each one of us where he wants us to be, and he has called us to accomplish what he calls us to accomplish. Dane Ortland says this. He says, finding our own unique role and being content in it, this is where flourishing happens. This is where life gets interesting. This is where, joy, where the joy comes out. You see, no matter what the Lord ha- uh, where the Lord has you, you're more than just a name on a list. You matter. You matter to God. And you, if you're sitting here this morning, if you are part of this church, no matter where you sit, no matter where you serve, no matter what your skill set is, you matter. Not only to the Lord, but you matter to your church. Don't ever hear the lies of the enemy that you don't matter. Don't ever hear the lies of the enemy that you are just not good enough to do fill blank. God has called you and placed you in a position that we cannot be. So don't take that for granted. With that said, like I said, I wish we could spend more time in, in chapter 23, but because of time, we actually have to keep going. I want us to go to uh, chapter 24 now. And you will notice that this is the last chapter of, of uh, the book of Second Samuel. But I want us to start by reading just verse 1, because this verse 1 is pretty full of stuff. <laughs> So I want us to read this. I want us to read verse 24, chapter 1. It says, it says, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. Let's stop there. So after telling us about the great men of David, um, the author goes back to the narrative. He picks up the story again, and in the story he starts by saying, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. That's a whole thing. And then he says this, and, and he, being God, incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. Church, this passage throws us immediately into the deep end of the theological pool. You see, if you read this verse carefully, there are some really interesting implications. The first one being that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Not for the first time. It says, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Only a couple of weeks ago, you may remember, we read in chapter 21 about God's wrath against Israel because of their persecution of the Gibeonites. This was a serious deal because Israel had made a covenant with the Gibeonites and they broke it. If you're familiar with this story, you know that David is about to sin again. And this sin will carry grave consequences. But notice that God's anger against the Israelite precedes David's sin. And I want you to keep that in mind. That the anger of the Lord had been kindled against the Israelites before David sinned. Secondly, I want you to notice the second part of the sentence. The author doesn't just tell us that, that the Lord kindled, I mean that the anger of the Lord was kindled. Um but he tells us that he incited David. Now, I want to, I, I skipped the point, but so let me, let me go back a little bit. I want you to know, and I want you to pay attention to this, I want you to notice that the author doesn't tell us what it was that kindled the anger of the Lord. He doesn't give us details, he just says that the anger of the Lord was kindled against the Israelites. But what we do know is that our God is a just God. We know 
that our God talks about himself by saying that he is patient, that he is slow to anger, and that he is abounding in steadfast love. So even if we don't have the details of why the anger of the Lord was kindled against the Israelites, we know that his anger is not unwarranted. God did not just wake up in a mood. And though we don't know the reason of the anger, we know that it was righteous and right and just. Now, the third thing I want, you, I want to address this morning is this little phrase that says, and he incited David against them, saying, go and count them. And as we'll see in a minute, David is about to sin gravely. And the consequences of his sin will be great. But what does it mean that God incited David against Israel? Well, this is what I mean when I say that we're in the deep side of the theological pool. If you don't mind, would you grab your Bibles with, uh, with me and go to 1 Chronicles chapter 21. You can keep your finger because we'll come back to, to 2 Samuel 24. But would you go with me? I want you to see it in your own Bible. Uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 21. In verse 1, it says this. Now, I want you to know this passage is a retelling of the same story. As in First, in, in first and Second Chronicles, we will often see stories that are retold. And so this is a parallel passage retelling the same story, but I want you to see how it starts. Verse 1 says this. It says, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Wait, what? So who incited David then? Was it the Lord? Or was it Satan? Also, did we just find a contradiction in Scripture? What do we do with this? Well, first of all, here's a good rule of thumb. Whenever you think you find a situation where the Bible is contradicting itself, let me give you a suggestion. Question yourself and your conclusion before you question Scripture. Because as you will see in a minute, whenever we allow Scripture to in interpret itself, Scripture always comes through. There are many verses in Scripture that appear contradictory until you allow Scripture to interpret itself. If you do this, you will always find out that Scripture will stand any type of scrutiny. So let's go back. What do we do with this? These two texts are giving uh, us what appears to be conflicting information. One says God incited David to number the people. The second one tells us Satan incited David to count the people. So the question is, was it God or was it Satan? Well, the answer is yes. What do I mean by that? Well, here's something that you may have never thought about. And it's this idea of concentric wills. Let me explain what I mean by that. First of all, as you will see later, this census, this counting of the people is sinful. So David, by counting the people, as we'll, he will do in just a couple minutes, uh, or as we will read in a couple minutes, uh, when David is counting the people, he is committing great sin. The sin was very significant and its consequences, as we will soon see, uh, so, soon see sorry, uh, but we know then that this is sin. But in a minute, we will also see that though he was incited to do this, David will be held responsible for his sin. Which means that David has two things. David has human agency. He sinned because 
He had the ability to choose to sin, but he also has human responsibility. David will be held responsible for this very sin. The combination of these two things is what we commonly refer to as free will. Sometimes people love to talk about free will, but we don't really define what free will is. Whenever we talk about free will, we mean this human agency and human responsibility. Now, the Bible clearly tells us that Satan incited David to number the people, right? In 1 Chronicles 21. Now, let me ask you a question. When David sinned by counting the people, was Satan happy with the result? Absolutely. You can then say that David did Satan's will. David did his will, but he also did Satan's will. Now, I feel the need to remind you at this point that Satan is nothing but a dog on a leash. Satan is not sovereign. He is not almighty. Hard as he may try, he has no ability to overcome God's decrees. In the book of Job, we get a peek behind the curtain, and we see that Satan actually needs God's permission to even tempt Job. So Satan is a dog on a leash. Which leads me to this. The Bible tells us as well that David was incited by God to number the people. So none of these things to God by surprise. He had ordained all these things to happen. So in, verse, uh, in, in one verse we see three concentric wills. And we have, I have a little graphic to show you what I mean by that. You have human agency and responsibility. And this is for whenever we sin, we choose to sin and we will be held responsible for it. And as we do that, we are within Satan's will, right? Because he wills us to do that. But none of these things ever take God by surprise. So even when we sin, we know that we are within God's will. And that's what I mean when I say there are three concentric wills. Now, this is not always true because as new believers... We do have the ability to resist temptation and to not do what Satan wants us to do, right? And so this is only when we sin. I have a next graphic, and this, the rest of our life, this is what the rest of our lives looks like. Our wills, though we have agency and responsibility, though we make choices, they always fall within God's will. So there are three concentric wills. You want me to give you another biblical example? I have one. That would be found in the story of Joseph in Genesis 50. Do you remember the story of Joseph? That his brothers sold him into slavery? They did, they did that on their own, right? They sinfully chose to send Joseph as, to sell Joseph as a slave. It was their will to do that, but it was also Satan's will for them to do that, for them to sin that way. Later in the story, we hear Joseph say to them in Genesis 50, 20, he says this, and this is what I want you to see. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many should be kept alive as they are today. So my friends, his brothers that exercised personal agency, they gave into Satan's purposes, but now we see it was always God's will that this would happen to Joseph so that he would rescue the people of Israel. And notice that this still does not free them from the responsibility of their sin. Now, from this verse then, we know that everything that is about to take place falls within God's sovereign plan. 
But the question remains, why would God do this? Why would he incite David? Alistair Begg helps us understand this when he explains this way. He says, God acted in his covenant judgment and exposed the sin of David and his people in order to both cleanse the nation and bring the king to deeper levels of repentance. And how he needed that. Satan, on the other hand, was seeking to destroy the people of God. Even though David sins, God's motives are holy and his goals are righteous. Nor should we lose sight of the fact, as Luther again said, that the devil is God's devil. Once again, church, Satan's nothing but a dog on a leash who cannot touch one hair of your head unless he is allowed by God. So in this one verse, we see how wills work, right? Now this is verse 1. There's 24 to go. But fear not, I will go a lot faster now. Would you read with me verses 2 to 9? Would you follow with me verses 2 to 9? And here, I want you to see how pride is the root of all sin. Verses 2 to 9 says this. It says, So the king said to Joab, Remember Joab? Special guy? The commander of the army, who was with him, go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aror and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and and unto Jazer. And they came to Gilead and to Kadesh, in the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon, and came to the fortress of Tyre, and to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites, and they went out to the Negev and of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king in Israel. There were eight hundred thousand valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were five hundred thousand. So here we see David's sin fleshed out. We see that David tells Joab to go and count the people. And Joab, the cold-hearted killer that we've seen in the last few chapters, he's like, I don't know if this is a good idea. And the word of the king prevailed, the Bible tells us. So David willfully makes this choice. He knows that he's doing wrong. Now, though we don't know exactly in detail why the census wasn't, was sinful in itself, we know that pride was a big, a big part of it. It may be that David decided to number the people out of a lack of trust in God, kind of like whenever you look at your bank account for peace instead of coming to the Lord. Maybe that's what David was doing by counting his people. Or... Maybe he just simply wanted to feel good about himself by seeing how many people he was in charge of. Either way, it was pride that moved David to count and number the people of Israel. About pride, Thomas Manton says this. He says, other sins are against God's law, but pride is against God's sovereignty. And we see that in David. Dane Orland as well says this. He says, all pride, before it is ever directed to other people, it is first directed to God. And church, that is why sin, I mean, why pride is such a big deal. 
You see, pride is a distortion of who God is and an exaltation of who we are. And this is a dangerous business. It was pride that brought the fall of Lucifer. It was pride that brought the fall of man. And it is pride that causes us to sin. We sin because we think we know better or deserve better than what God wants us to have. Pride, no matter how subtle it is, is a thief. Pride kills. Church, let us be careful. Because let me tell you, the problem is that pride is a shapeshifter. I know at times in my life, pride looks like boasting. Other times, it looks like cynicism or content. At times, pride hides uh, hides behind virtue. Pride sometimes wears a mask. The mask of hard work can sometimes be pride. The mask of theological precision can be pride. Or in my case, in my biggest temptation, if I can confess this to you, is the mask of humility. I struggle when I know, I know I struggle with pride in the shape of false humility. And I am telling you this as my church so you keep me accountable. But I struggle with this. Brother and sister, can I ask you this morning, what masks does pride wear in your life? Is there pride in your life? I would bet there is some. And let me tell you this morning, let me encourage you this morning, confess it and put it to death. All I'm trying to say this morning is the pride kills. And in just a minute, we will see the consequences of David's pride in the following verses. So would you follow with me, verses uh, 10 through 16. And here I want you to see that our sin carries far-reaching consequences. Verse 10 says this, it says, But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider, and decide what answer I shall return to him uh, who sent me. Then David says, uh, this is verse 14, David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall in the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence in Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite. Church, I want you to notice in verse 9, I mean, sorry, in verse 10, how David has a moment of clarity. As soon as he hears the numbers from Joab, he has a, mom, a moment of clarity. As, he, as soon as he, he hears the words, he immediately realizes that he has sinned greatly and he has acted foolishly. But we've all been there, right? Sometimes, immediately, as soon as we're done sinning, it hits us. What a bad choice that was. And we feel terrible. 
There's this moment of clarity that follows our sin where we realize that was not worth it. And then we start seeing the consequences that sin may carry. And we feel terrible. You can hear almost David's grief in the realization. He knows he messed up yet again. Church, what a gift it is to have a conscience that isn't seared or hardened. You know, David was a fool, and he said he sinned time and time again. But what a gift it is that he did not have a seared conscience. Let us pray that our, seer, uh, that our conscience does not grow hard. So David here confesses his sin to the Lord, which really is the only right thing to do. Now you may remember the last time when David sinned gravely, back in chapter 12, whenever he sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, when he realizes his sin, it took Nathan coming to him to realize his sin, or at least to acknowledge it. But after Nathan comes, David confesses his sin, and he hears from Nathan the wonderful words from the Lord that says, the Lord has put away your sin. Oh man, what beautiful words. This time, however, things are different. After his confession, as soon as David wakes up, God speaks to David through Gad the prophet. But this time, he doesn't come with good news. He comes with a terrible choice. Gad the prophet gives David three different options to choose from as a consequence of his sin. Now, this is a very unique situation where God would ask you, hey, what do you want the consequences to be? Um, but he gives them three options. He's, he gives David three options. He says, you can choose between three years of famine in the land, three months of fleeing from your enemies, or three days of pestilence. Like I said, this is a unique situation. We don't know why God gives them the options. But it might be to show David, and maybe even the people, how as a king, David is utterly unable to save his own people. Only God can do that. But what we can see here clearly is the idea that justice always needs to be satisfied. Sin needs to be paid for. And we know from Romans that the wages of sin is death. David then chooses one of the three options. These are three terrible options. And David chooses option three, three days of pestilence. And in verse 14, he says this, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. Let me not fall into the hand of man. Church, David understands that there is no better place for a sinner than to be in the hands of a merciful God. That is a repentant sinner. With that said, God shows his mercy by stopping the destruction of the people. But at the end, 70,000 people died because of the consequences of their sin. Now, if you're like me, you may initially feel like this was a bit heavy-handed. But I want to say two things about this. Number one, you may remember from the opening verse of the chapter that we don't know what the sin of Israel was. But we do know that our God is patient, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. So if the consequences were these serious, we can only assume that the sin was very serious. The second thing I want to say about this is that the number of deaths um, that we see here, though it's a lot, it only amounts to about 5% of the population that David just counted. Which means that God had mercy on 19 out of every 20 people. When in reality, we know that they were all guilty. 
Number three, I want you to notice how God followed this act of discipline with an offer of restoration and forgiveness, which leads us to our last point this morning. Verses 17 to 25. And here, as we read these words, I want you to see the impulse of substitution that comes from David. And I want you to see that the impulse for substitution is a sign of great love. Verse 17 says this, it says, Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And God came the day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David went up at God's word, as the Lord commanded. And when Orana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Orana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Orana said, Why has the Lord my king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Orana said to David, Let my lord the king take an offer um, Take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing, uh, threshing's ledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king Orana, O king, Orana gives to the king. And Orana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Orana, No, but I will buy it for, uh, from you for a price. I will not offer a burnt offering to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver, and David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. You see, after God stopped the pestilence, it probably took some time for them to realize that he had stopped. But in the middle of it, a grieving David confesses his sin yet again to the Lord. But this time he adds these words. He says, please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. You see, here we see David's substitutionary impulse, which is a result of love. You may remember we talked about this when we went over the death of Absalom. But here we see it yet again. How great love brings about the impulse for substitution. For this to make sense, maybe let me put it this way. As parents, we've all been there, right? Whenever your, 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 your son or your daughter, whenever one of your children is sick and hurting, haven't you wished that it could be put on you instead of the kid? Haven't you seen your child and say, I wish could, this could be happening to me? That comes only as a result of love. And David loved his people. And he says to the Lord, can that be put on me? The problem is with this is that David is a sinner as well, and he cannot be a substitute for his people. You see, what they needed was a perfect substitute, a sinless substitute. So God in his mercy instructs David to go and build an altar. But he wants that altar at the place where, the, where he stopped the plague. He wants an altar at the place where his mercy was shown. Though God, uh, through God the prophet, the Lord instructs David to raise an altar on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David goes to Arana the Jebusite to ask for the land, which Arana offers to give to David for free. Not only the land, but he also offers the oxen for sacrifice. And here David says this, he says, no, no, no. 
I will buy it from you for a prize. You see, the Lord is worthy of only our best. David is saying, how am I going to offer to the Lord if it costs me nothing? David is aware that a sacrifice without a cost is not really a sacrifice. Our Lord is not honored by our leftovers. And David knew that. David knew that God was worthy of a greater offering. Orana then sells him the threshing floor, and David, in obedience, builds the altar, and he makes two types of offerings that morning, that day. Remember how I mentioned earlier that he was not a good substitute because of his own sin? Well, he presented to the Lord a burnt offering, which was made for atonement of sins. If you're familiar with, with sacrifices in the Old Testament, a burnt offering was made to, afo- to atone for the sins of people. This offering was actually pointing to a greater sacrifice that would come later and take away the, son- the sins of the world. Of this future greater offering isaiah the prophet would say this he said but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned everyone to his own way and the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all Church, that is an offer that has been made for us, to which we'll get in just a moment. But then David also offers a peace offering. A peace offering is a kind of sacrifice that was offered as a sign of thanksgiving. They were a sign of peace with God. And I think you guys probably know where I'm going with this. But you see, David was a good king. And though he was a good king, he was a sinful man and utterly unable to save his people. But from his line, God has promised, he had promised a better king that would come, one whose kingdom would be eternal. Church, our Lord Jesus Christ was a better David. David's sin brought about consequences for his people. Jesus would not only not add to the sin of his people, but he would take away their sins. David only wished to take the place of his people. Christ, on the other hand, went He came down from heaven and he took her place. And on our behalf, the wrath of God was poured on him. The punishment that you and I deserved was taken by Christ at the cross. Remember earlier I mentioned 1 Chronicles 21? It was a retelling of the same story. I want you to read with me, or or it's going to be on the screen, but I want you to read this, uh, pay attention to this. Verse 26 says this at the end of the story. It says this, And David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. Do you see this? David, a sinner, presented an offering, and he called upon the Lord, and the Lord heard him. And the Lord accepted his offering. The Lord accepted David. Can I ask you this morning? Have you called upon the Lord? I know you may think yourself unworthy, just like David was. But have you called upon the Lord? You see, unlike David, you don't have to make a sacrifice. You don't have to build an an altar. Jesus already paid for the sins of those who call upon his name. 
If you like David, a guilty sinner, call upon the Lord. He will surely hear you and welcome you into his family. As we close this morning, I want to circle back to the beginning of this chapter. Remember we talked about the fact that God had incited David to number the people? You might be asking, why would he do that? And though I did not know to claim for certain, I think the scripture gives us a few hints. First, God may have, incited, may have incited David so that David would make sacrifice, not only on his behalf, but on behalf of his people who, God, uh, who had kindled God's anger. So God may have incited David so he could have saved, so, so he could save Israel. Secondly, we said that God is sovereign and ordains all things. Well, remember the threshing floor from Arana that David purchased? Well, this place is historically important because you see, it was in this very place that was known as Mount Moriah where Abraham had been asked to sacrifice his son. It was in that very place and where the Lord showed his mercy. And in that, ask, in that, in that request, he had foreshadowed what he would do for us. Now, after purchasing this land, Solomon, his son, would build a temple in that very land. And more importantly, it is believed that in that very mount was the place that would later be called as Golgotha or Calvary, the very place where Jesus would give his life on the cross for you and for me and to take away the sins of the world. Church, do you see this great mercy that would take our sin and foolishness and turn it into a thing of beauty and mercy? Church, this is good news because I don't bring much to the table. I bring nothing but weakness and foolishness. And that I have a lot of. But God in his mercy uses our sinful, our sinful ways and he turns them into a thing of beauty. So church, would you stand with us and respond in thanksgiving to the Lord in singing?